gospel. So let me just give you a little bit of context to where we've been. Uh, because this morning's passage in Acts 4 is, is very significant for us. Um, not that there isn't a passage in Scripture that isn't significant, but sometimes there's moments where you see something and you go, man, this is speaking right into our culture right now, and we need to kind of understand this and, and live this out. So we spent, I don't know, two and a half months going through the first two chapters, and, uh, and then we went all through chapter 3 last week, and then we're going to go 4, 1 to 22 today. But I want you to remind you back to the kind of the theme verse of Acts, Acts 1, verse 8. What does it say? Do we have it? Not yet. Anybody remember? But you will receive what? Power. When who? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he says, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's this commission that's given Right? The disciples, as, as Jesus has died on the cross for their sins, as he's risen again. They're spending those 40 days with him, and they're expecting that Jesus is going to rule and reign and uh, free them from Roman oppression, that they could worship God the way that they want to. And, and so they say, is it time? Is, is it now that you're going to do this? And, and Jesus d- redirects their question and says, you know, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But that's where verse 8 comes in. But, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. And so this 120 or so followers of Jesus at that point are gathered together and they're worshiping and praying and, and waiting for the Spirit to come. And, and then the Spirit comes at Pentecost. And we read how the Spirit comes down in tongues of fire resting over each individual with this imagery of God's temple where God's presence was. But now that God's presence is not in a place. It belongs in each one of us. We are now indwelled with the Spirit of God so that we can go and take the, the word, the message, the gospel of Jesus into all of the world. And so this is what the disciples begin to do when Peter begins to preach a couple of sermons. And it says that many come to faith and daily people are added to the church and many wonderful things are are happening. And so far, all we've read is, is the good, the positive response. But this morning, we come to a place where we get to see a bit of a negative response. And what's really interesting is the crowds, the people as as kind of the generic group of people, they respond positively, but it's the religious leaders that respond negatively. Does that remind you of anyone else's ministry? Right, Jesus came and he would teach the crowds and the crowds would respond, but the religious leaders felt threatened. When Jesus corrected them, they they got so angry that they sought a way to kill him. And now we're going to see the same thing. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because, and Tori did a great job of explaining this to us yesterday, is in this world, we will have what? Trouble. It's a messy world. And to declare the name of Jesus means we're going to go against the grain. We're going to be countercultural because we're expressing that there's a God in heaven who loves us, who wants to be in relationship with us, but who has called us to repent and to turn towards him. See, here's the thing is a lot of people don't want to repent because they really love the things that they're doing. And sometimes we don't want to repent because we really love the things that we're doing. 
But Scripture calls us to repent. And Peter, in his couple of sermons here, calls the people to repent. And while many do, and we're going to see that, what we're going to focus on a little bit of our time here is the negative response. And what do you and I do when we come across negative response? When we seek to share the gospel with our friends, our coworkers, our family, our housemates, our associates, whoever we kind of run into, when we seek to share the gospel and they respond negatively, how should we respond to that? Because I think many of us, many of us, I want to say this charitably, let me just say it about me, is sometimes I'm afraid to share things because I'm afraid of rejection. But here's the thing is the message of the gospel is not about me, so why should I feel rejected? The message of the gospel is about Jesus Christ. And this is our calling, and this is what we are supposed to do. And so Peter has preached the sermon, and now let's read chapter 4, 1 to 22, and we'll see the response. It says, as they were speaking, that's Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and with Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 
So we begin to see a little bit of an opposition. Now, so far, it's just threatening. But if you know the book of Acts, you know what's coming. Is the opposition, the persecution rises, and, and all, ultimately all of the disciples, except John, who wrote the book of Revelation, all of them were killed for their belief in Jesus. The persecution that comes up against the church, that you would be thrown in prison, you would be killed in the streets, and, and it's so crazy to think of that only if you've grown up in this culture or in a culture where that's your, your religious freedoms have been protected. Because there are many places in the world where this, what we read here, is the norm. Where you can't walk openly with the scriptures, you can't proclaim the name of Jesus, or you'll be thrown into prison at best or killed at worst. This is the reality for many. And if I had to guess, I would say this is going to become an increasing reality for us in this part of the world as well. We're being prepared, we're being reminded how to respond when things get difficult. So let's work our way through this and we'll highlight a couple of things. As Peter preaches, right, we see that 5,000 of the, we'll call them the common people, right, the regular people, the non-religious leader group of people, they respond, but the religious people are super angry. We see the Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but who were they as a group? Not what did they believe. Who were they? There are two groups of religious kind of leaders from a theological standpoint that studied and taught scriptures, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Two different groups of people, and they were kind of at odds with each other about a few theological things. All I can remember is, so kids, when you learn a song in Sunday school, it's going to stay in your brain for the rest of your lives. That's just the way that it works. And I remember a song about the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were what? Shayla, do you remember? They were not so fair, you see. Right? They expected things from people, but they didn't do them themselves. You need to go and do this. Uh, We're not, Jesus will say, you know, you're not even willing to lift your little finger to help your neighbor. They had expectations about others to do things, but they didn't. We might call that, well, I don't know, you could use whatever adjective you want there. The Sadducees, they were so sad, you see. Yeah, you got that one. And part of that, right, is because they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they, they were actually more conservative than the Pharisees from a theological standpoint. But they denied the resurrection. They did not understand the Old Testament prophecies about resurrection. And so when Peter is preaching about the resurrection, notice verse 2, they were greatly annoyed. It's interesting wording, isn't it? Greatly annoyed. Now, they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's true. But as I dug into this further, what scholars all kept pointing out is that, yes, they didn't believe in the resurrection, but that was not the point. They weren't trying to fight Peter and John and the other disciples who were proclaiming a resurrection and going, we have a theological issue here. What they had was a political issue. See, the Pharisees were more respected by the common people because they themselves were more average people, whereas the Sadducees were very wealthy. 
They had influence. They had power. They were kind of very buddy-buddy with the government of Rome. They were very aristocrat kind of thing. And so their goal was let's not rock the boat because if we rock the boat, the Romans are going to reject us and we'll lose our prestige, our power, our influence, our wealth. And so we're not going to rock the boat here. That was their motivation behind everything. It's a good thing we don't live in a time where political posturing is a thing, right? Sorry, I expected a bigger laugh, but that's okay. That's, thank you, that was helpful. Is the Sadducees were not concerned about, no, no, don't teach something theologically incorrect. It was, no, this is going to cost us if they teach this. We're going to lose our well-to-do position. And so they say, well, we've got to silence them. And so look what it says. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So real quick, so the Sanhedrin consisted of Um, And you see kind of a few people listed there. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are on there, but many more Sadducees than the Pharisees. And they were kind of the religious council. And so this took place on the temple grounds. So technically speaking, they had the right to arrest anybody that was causing a ruckus in the temple grounds. And the Sanhedrin met every day to deal with, okay, what do our laws say? How are we going to deal with these things? And so the fact that Peter and John are, are put in kind of custody for the day is not very surprising probably actually kind of expected when they buck the trend of the norm for people to do that. But what's interesting is that 5,000 people, even though they went into custody, heard and responded to the message of the gospel. John Polhill, he's an excellent commentary on Acts, and he says this, the Sadducees tried their best to stop the witness of the apostles, but they did not succeed. The Christian message was finding too much acceptance with the people. The rulers raged, but it was all in vain. In other words, God's going to do what God's going to do. Right? They step out in faith, the, these 120 or so, oh, I guess we're way more than that now. There's these followers of Jesus are stepping out, declaring who Jesus is, and no matter what the consequences are, the church is exploding in growth because people are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. So it says in verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and elders, they, they came together and they asked a very important question. By what power or by what name did you do this? This is why we said Acts 1-8 at the beginning. By whose power? The power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the risen Lord Jesus. Now remember, we talked about, and by what name? Well, we talked about this last week, is, is in kind of ancient times, someone's name represented who they were, all, everything about them. And so Peter has a great response to this. But just before we look at his response, look at verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Wasn't he already filled with the Holy Spirit? So did the Holy Spirit leave and now he's coming back? I'm leaving that hanging because I'm not answering that question. Because we're going to answer that question in a few weeks. But I want us to think about this because this is a serious kind of issue in kind of evangelicalism. Is this what is the filling of the Holy Spirit? Is it several times? Is it once? Is it, what does this look like? And I want you to think about that and study it through and read through Acts and kind of see how many times the Holy Spirit will come upon somebody to accomplish something. Now I am going to answer it just a little bit. 
is we were already told the Holy Spirit comes upon every believer who confesses Jesus as Lord. But what we see here is a moment where the Holy Spirit is going to do something. And so I'm going to paraphrase this bit here. He's asked the question, by what power or who did you do this, right? And he says basically this. Just so it's super clear, just in case you don't know, it is not by our power or authority that we did this. This man was healed of his inability to walk. And he was restored whole by the name of Jesus. Now remember, restored whole was two parts there, right? Is physically he was made well to walk, but what was the second part? Anybody remember? For the first time in his life, he was able to go, able to go into the temple and worship. Because he was no longer considered unclean. He was no longer considered um, marred. His body was now whole. And so there's a physical and a spiritual thing that comes. In fact, most of what we see in the New Testament is when a physical sign of healing comes, what, co- what follows it? A declaration of sins being forgiven or of the gospel being presented and a response to the gospel. So again, whenever we read about miracles in the New Testament, whenever we read about amazing things done, it's not about the act, it's about what the act is going to open up to accomplish, and that's the sharing of the gospel. We see that here as well. Just in case it's not clear, let it be known that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. Now again, right? So Peter's been very gracious to this point, but he also has not been... Go- he, let's, how do I say this? He's been very gracious, but he has also told the truth very plainly. To the Jewish people, primarily, these sermons have been said so far, and and he's saying, look, you crucified him. There's guilt in that. You have done this. You're You're not innocent of the act. But then he's always been very gracious with the people, but we kind of don't see the graciousness here when he's talking to the religious leaders. When you think about the life of Jesus, is whom was he only harsh to? The religious people. Right? He was very kind, very gracious, and had so much patience for those who weren't religious because they recognized that they needed help. They needed hope. But the religious leaders, well, we don't need any hope. We don't need any help because we don't believe that you are the Messiah. So Peter says, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Now, again, we're pushing back on the Sadducees here, right? And by the power of Jesus, this man is standing before you well. And then he adds this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. But he has become the cornerstone. Right? So he's quoting another passage in the Psalms. And that's really important because the Sadducees, the religious leaders, you can see in their response starting in verse 13, which we'll get to in a moment, is they look at them and they go, you a common, uneducated man, you're going to teach us the scriptures? You're going to show us how we should interpret the Old Testament? But of course, as we read and as we'll talk about, is they had nothing really to complain about because the guy who they healed was standing right there beside him. Now here's the thing that I just want to highlight back to. Peter very boldly declares this to the religious leaders. But again, notice verse 8. 
uh, sorry, yeah, verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. There's two different times in the New Testament that this is talked about in this context. In Matthew 10, 19, Jesus says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Luke and his gospel, and again, Luke wrote the book of Acts, so we kind of see this being mirrored a little bit more clearly here. Luke says it this way, For I will, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The Holy Spirit is going to give them the words to say, and we see that fulfillment here. Number one reason people don't share their faith is because they say, according to studies, they say, I don't know what I would say. Here's the good news for us all. That's a bit of a cop-out because the Holy Spirit is going to give us what to say. Now, we have a responsibility to act in faith there, but we don't have to be like, man, I have to have the exact right thing to say in the right pattern and in the right format, and I need to say the exact right verses at the right time or they're not going to believe. No, because it's not up to me to make somebody believe the gospel. It's up to me to have the courage to go and declare Jesus and allow God's Holy Spirit to be working in the life of the people that are hearing it. And so if you are sitting there today going, man, I don't know what I would say. Well, there's two things. One is we have the Bible right in front of us. So let's study it. But then let's trust in the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to give us the words to say in that moment that we would know. So let's look at the response of the Sadducees because this is interesting. Right? They see the boldness of Peter and John, but they're uneducated, common men. But then there's the next verse. And they recognized they had been with Jesus. They didn't go to the religious schools that the Sadducees went to or that the Pharisees went to. They sat under one man. And for three, three and a half years, they were taught by Jesus. And they knew the scriptures way better than the Pharisees or Sadducees. Why? Because Jesus was, gonna, was showing them how to interpret them correctly. So again, if, you're, if your sole teaching comes only from, let's say, me or your pastor in the church that you're from, then I would say you're getting, I want to be very gracious to myself here and other pastors, hopefully you're getting only what the Word of God says. But how many times have we seen or been a part of a sermon where some crazy nonsense has been spouted? We need to go back to the word. We need to see what is the gospel of Jesus all about and what is true in it. The disciples were there. They heard Jesus and they know. I skipped something. We, I skipped something very important. I apologize. Verse 12 is the center of this whole thing. After Peter shares that, he says, there's salvation in who? pretty exclusive statement, isn't it? But notice it's inclusive of everyone can respond to this. So is Christianity inclusive? Well, it's inclusive in that everyone's called to respond to the message of Jesus. Nobody is excluded because of their lifestyle. Nobody's excluded because of what they've done. The message of Jesus is for all of us, but it's exclusive because only in the name of Jesus, do we find salvation? So, 
Sorry, I missed that. But seeing the man who was healed, this is verse 14, standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. Super interesting. They're looking at people declaring that it's through Jesus that this man was healed and Jesus that God raised from the dead. And only in Jesus do we find salvation. Oh, and it's through Jesus that he was healed. And they're standing there and they go, I don't really know what to say. I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to argue this fact. But here's where it gets really sad. Verse 15, when they had commanded them to leave, they conferred with one another and they said, what shall we do with these men? Now notice this. For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Do you see that? They're acknowledging that what happened was done in the name of Jesus and all the people believe it and we can't deny it because he's standing right there. Wouldn't you think this would be a great time for a little bit of repentance? But what do they do? But in order that this may spread no further, my paraphrase again, so that nobody else would experience healing, so that nobody else would be able to see that was blind, so that nobody else would be able to walk who was lame, so that no one else would experience God's fullness, we got to shut them up. That's what they're saying. And I find that deeply disturbing and very sad, that their hearts are so hard that even though they see a miracle done in front of them, they go, nope, we're not believing that. Now, of course, this really shouldn't surprise us. I don't have time to read it, but in Luke chapter 6, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. And all the religious leaders are gathered around, and, and they know Jesus is about to heal him, and so they're watching him. And they're like, oh, we can't heal him today, because what day is it? Can't heal on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath is work. Except as we've talked about before, if Jesus speaks and a man is healed, how much work is that? We all speak. We just don't have power and authority like Jesus. Oh, wait, except we have the Holy Spirit, right? And that's what we see here in the text. But in, in Luke 6, is, it says that the Pharisees are filled with fury when he's healed. Now, again, a withered hand all of a sudden stretches out, is healed, and they go, how dare you heal that man on this day? You must be of the devil. Their hearts are so hard because their expectation of who the Messiah is going to be is so rigid and they're so arrogant that they're not willing to see it. Now, the question is, here's our own reality. Are our hearts so filled with arrogance that we are not willing to see when God is at work? And are we going to deny things? When we see God at work, are we going to rationalize it away? Are we going to ignore it? The writer to the Hebrews warns them over and over, do not let your heart be hardened. And he talks about the book of Exodus, and we, we studied through Exodus in 2023, so this is very familiar. He says, don't let your heart be hardened because the, God took the people out of slavery in Egypt. He showed them miracle after miracle through the wilderness, and they rejected him and worshiped a golden calf. And because of that, they could not enter the promised land because they rejected the God who saved them. 
And the writer to the Hebrews says, don't be like that. Don't have your heart so hardened that you cannot see when God is at work. And that is my plea for us because we can read this and go, man, this sounds so crazy that they would see a miracle and yet deny it and go, no, we can't let anybody else be healed. It wasn't done in our authority. I have another question. How many people did they heal in their own authority? Doesn't seem like very many. Doesn't seem like anybody. But their hearts are so hard. So we ought to be careful. Are our hearts hard? Or are we looking and seeing? So they say, no, we're going to threaten them. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them, do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus at all. We don't care that you healed someone. We don't care that he was restored to physical health, and we don't care that he was restored to spiritual health, that he could walk into the temple and declare the goodness of God because it happened in a way that we don't like. So do not speak in the name of Jesus. Now here's a hugely important verse or a couple of verses for us. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Right? So what is he saying? You are the religious leaders of our Jewish people. We understand that you have the authority to tell us not to do this. But you've seen what God has done. And you're asking us to go against what God has done and we cannot do that. We cannot be silent. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because all the people, they were all praising God for what had happened. Now here's the thing. In the chapters ahead, this is going to change. The crowds are not going to be filled with people who are praising God. They're going to be filled with people who are rejecting Christ as the Messiah. And the people and all the crowds praising God here seem to have some kind of a protection where the Sadducees and the, and the rest of the Sanhedrin, they're like, well, we can't, we can't do anything more because the people, they're going to riot. They're going to revolt. They're going to fight back. Whatever they're going to do, they were fearful of it. But as soon as that sways, what we begin to see is the apostles being thrown in jail and being killed and being tortured, etc., Why? Because they will not stop to proclaim what Jesus has said and done. So, we live in a time and a place where the government likes to impose things, right? And we like to take this verse and we like to make it say something it actually doesn't say. We like to take it to a place and go, what it says is we can, anytime the government goes against anything that we think, we can just revolt. That's not what it says. Now, that's another conversation for another time because what we do know and we're going to see later is that when we're, when we're called to do something that goes against God's word is that we cannot abide by that. And we have to do what's right. But notice what they're calling here. Do not preach in the name of Jesus. That's what they're being told they cannot do any longer. You and I are only sitting here and st- or standing here today because they did not listen to that. Now he says, you're going to have to judge this for yourselves. 
whether we should listen to God or to you, but we're going to declare the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think when we read some of these verses, we get fired up in our culture because we're more concerned about the rule than actually what we're trying to accomplish. So how many times do we get frustrated when the government says you can't do something, but here's the question, is what they're saying is you can't speak in the name of Jesus. Well, if we're not declaring the name of Jesus and we're not sharing the gospel with people, then we have no right to be upset when they tell us not to. Sorry, that was very aggressive. But it's true. Is if we're more concerned about our religious freedoms than we are the declaration of the gospel, then something in our hearts already screwed up. And we need to come under submission to Christ. Are we declaring the gospel to our friends, to our coworkers? Are we declaring it to the people that we live with, to our families? Because if we're not, then the laws don't really matter. The problem is my heart, not the law. I am called to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Well, we're in the ends of the earth right now. We're called to make a declaration of who Jesus is. We are part of the Great Commission. That is our mission, and that is our purpose. And Peter's telling us here, you know what, if we do not have your blessing, if those in, in power over us will not allow us to speak in the name of Jesus, if it costs us our lives, we will do it anyway. That's the takeaway. It doesn't matter what the government says in that regards. What matters is are we going to be faithful to Jesus Christ? And I was deeply convicted as I was reading and studying because I went off on a rabbit trail here and I wrote half a sermon that I had to erase because I had to look at my own heart and say, am I actually concerned with the proclamation of Jesus? Do I just share it on Sunday mornings to you or do I actually go out and proclaim Jesus? Do I look for opportunities to share with the, with the non-Christian friends and interactions that I have to tell them here's who Jesus is because this is what the calling is. This is what my purpose in life is more than anything else. You and I have been given a mission to take Jesus to the world. And if we're too afraid because of rejection or because we don't know what to say, then we're not taking the mission seriously. And I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here other than my own heart. But I hope that we reflect on a verse like this and we go, look, they had the boldness, they had the courage to say, we are going to do what's right no matter what we're going to claim. We're going to proclaim the name of Jesus and I don't care if the government says no. And, and they actually put their money where their mouth is because, it, like I said, almost all of them are ultimately killed for their faith in Jesus. They will not be silent. How quickly do we back down? How quickly do we go, well... I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. I think if we're afraid to share the gospel because we don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, we don't know the gospel. Because without the gospel, they're going to be feeling way more than uncomfortable. It's very serious. Eternity is at stake. Now, we can do this graciously and lovingly, and we should. We shouldn't just be screaming and yelling at people and telling them they're wrong and dumb. That doesn't work very well. But we can declare to them the goodness of who God is, what he's done in us, and we can be faithful to share that message of Jesus. And then we can entrust a holy God 
to be the one to do the work in their hearts to accomplish his purposes. It's not up to me. God's going to give me the words to say, but hopefully, not hopefully, God is going to open people's hearts at the right time and in the right way so that they hear the message and then they have a response to make whether they accept or reject it. And so as we finish this, as we kind of move into a time of communion, is maybe we know the gospel, right, intellectually. We know that Jesus came to the earth and that he lived a a sinless life so that he could be offered in place of our sin, that he could die on the cross and forgive us of our sin because he was perfect. We might know that he rose again, which we're going to celebrate later this month in Easter We might know that he then spent 40 days talking with the followers, proclaiming all the truths to them, and then ascended into heaven. And we might know that Jesus is one day going to come and rule and judge the world. We might know all of that intellectually, but do we know it in our hearts? If I really understood that my loved ones that are rejecting Jesus have an eternity at stake where they might end up in hell, If how am I going to respond to that? It would be very unloving for me to go, ah, it might make them uncomfortable now. It would be very unloving to go, I don't want to offend anyone. It would be very unloving to say, I don't know what to say. The loving thing would be to go, do I believe the gospel? Has Christ saved me from hell? Can the message of Jesus and and my declaration to them be a part of them coming to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior? Then I better share it with them. Now again, I'm pointing the finger at myself here because how often do I intentionally embark on these conversations with people that I know don't know Christ? Certainly not often enough. But that's what the text is telling us here. That's what we need to submit ourselves under. Is that no matter the punishment that's coming, this is what's most important, the declaration of Jesus. And we want to be, I want to be a person who believes that and acts that way. I hope that we want to be a church that wants to say Jesus is most important. More than any other thing. So I want to pray for a few moments, but we're gonna, I'm going to invite a couple of guys to help with communion in just a few moments. And when we pass out the elements, usually we sit quietly and kind of reflect. But what I want us to reflect specifically on here is do I actually believe the gospel of Jesus? Do I love my neighbor enough to declare the truth of who he is? And I hope that what we can do is we can pray that God would give us the courage, the boldness, the grace, the right words to say that we might be willing to stand up for what is true and right. Let's pray. God, as we consider these words, as we consider that we have a calling that you have promised that you will give us the Holy Spirit, that you will give us power so that we can 
have the words to say and that we can declare to our neighbors and to our coworkers and all the people that you have put in our circle of influence, that we can share with them the message of Jesus. But God, we live in a time where it's so easy to be distracted by hobbies and careers and all the other things that we do that we forget of the importance of the gospel. God, thank you that Peter and John and the other disciples and the other followers of Jesus were willing to declare the truth no matter what. May you give us that courage and that boldness. May we recognize that we need the gospel. We need to share the gospel and we need to learn the gospel more every day. Would you strengthen us and would you empower us to accomplish that task that you have given to us? God, as we move into a time of communion now, as we reflect, may we be honest with our hearts. May this not be about guilt or shame, but may it be about a love for who you are and what you have called us. God, you have given a great mission. And we get to see lives changed and transformed, and what a privilege that is. So as we consider these things in these next few moments of quiet, would we be honest with our hearts? And would we consider the gospel? What the message of Jesus means to us? And would you renew a passion within us to declare that to those in our lives? Amen. Just gonna